I swear, I really did originally intend for NPC episodes to be one episode, not the multiple episodes that more recently covered cases have been. It's like I planted something in the Mint family and then actually thought that I would still have control of the garden. So look, I have recently accepted that the NPC known as Oregano has taken over. I'm just gonna... Yeah, I mean, um, it's not worth a fight. This is episode 3 in a series about the death of Danny Hansford in Savannah, Georgia in May of 1981. Please, don't be daft. If you haven't heard at least the other two episodes, I suggest doing that in order. One, then two, then start back here. Just as a refresher, I am working with four main sources. It may have been the previous episode or the episode before that, I can't really remember, in which I called them primary sources. I have realized that any academics listening probably heard very annoying fingers on a blackboard when I said that. What I meant was that there are four sources I am using as my primary information. If you didn't have a record screech in your head, trust me, you do not want me to go into the functional definitions of primary and secondary sources. These four sources are Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil by John Barrent, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, the film directed by Clint Eastwood, After Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil by Marilyn Bardsley, and Lawyer Games, After Good Night in the Garden of Good and Evil. Since the naming of these sources was in no way original, I have mostly used the author's names to differentiate with the exception of the film, for which I just say the film, or the movie. Before we resume the tale, the Yardbirds will set the mood, and I will see you on the other side. I'm not talking, that's what I've got to say. I used to think I Man, I swear to it, things like that will chatter. Ain't a thing that matter, that's one thing I can do without. I'm not talking, that's what I've got to say. Things I say The evening of May 1st, 1981, Jim Williams and Danny Hansford had gone to the drive-in, but only saw one of the three zombie movies that were showing that night. They came back to the home of Jim Williams and played games until Danny, who had consumed a huge amount of alcohol and marijuana, started to get extremely agitated and aggressive. The way Jim describes Danny's demeanor, it sounds like Danny had a crazed, manic episode. Danny started threatening to destroy, yet again, Jim's personal antiques. Jim tells him to leave the house, and Danny leaves the room, but he comes back with one of Jim's World War II German Lugers and points it at Jim. Danny says, well, I'm going to leave this town in the morning, but you, meaning Jim, are leaving tonight. And he points the gun at Jim. As soon as Jim saw the Luger in Danny's hand, he pulls another Luger out of his desk and fires at Danny and kills him. The first thing he does is call his friend Goodman. Then he calls his attorney, and then he calls the police. The prosecution will use this timeline against Jim. Danny is dead, you shot him, and the first thing you do is not call the police? No, you call your friend, then your attorney, and then the police? 
Not a good look, Jim Williams. There's also a gap of 36 minutes, inverted commas here, between when Jim called Goodman to tell him Danny was dead and the point Goodman and the police arrived. Both would arrive at about 3 a.m. on the 2nd of May the next morning. The prosecution uses this time gap to suggest that Jim was staging the scene. From Kirkland, quote, Time gaps are antithetical to the self-defense case. Such a lengthy delay before seeking help is completely counter to normal human behavior. Williams's first act after killing Danny Hansford, putting aside for the moment staging the scene, wasn't to call the police, it was to call his friend and to tell him to come quick. This is not the act of a distraught man. This is the act of a man in trouble calling for help. End quote. Um, not necessarily, Kirkland. You are right about one thing concerning human nature, Dup. Human nature often thinks it knows what human nature is until you are in a situation you've never been in before. I am so tired of people thinking they are the authority of how to act in order to be human. Do you cry? Do you not cry? Should you smile? Should you get a lawyer? Should you go into work? One thing that can happen in a trauma is that time can pass at a weird rate. Go by fast, crawl by, or alternating the two at odd intervals. It's kind of a shock thing. It is entirely possible that Jim Williams shot Danny, and then he just stared at a wall for what he thought was five minutes, but was actually 36 minutes. Also, I call back to a pin we placed last time about who Jim calls and when. Old money doesn't call the police. In fact, one of the original purposes of the police was to keep the rabble in line. The police were for commoners. Old money deals with unpleasantness out of the public eye. It is an internal matter, and if they need further assistance, they usually hire a private service, a service which has the ability to be discreet. Who did the Murdaughs call first? Grandpa and the lawyers. Kirkland, you are a native son of Savannah. Why do you not know this? Jim Williams did not actually come from any money let alone old money, but old money is what he aspired to, and I would put forth that at the time of Danny Hansford's death, Jim Williams thought he had achieved that status. Jim Williams was thinking like old money. Whether he murdered Danny or acted in self-defense, Williams would have called a trusted friend or his lawyer. He did both. Kirkland, you got nothing. But let's continue. Quote from Kirkland. Corporal Anderson and Patrolman White were met at the open front door of Mercer House by a 50-year-old male, James A. Williams, who said, I shot him. He's in the other room. Williams led the officers down the wide entrance hall to his study entrance on the left. Just beyond the study entrance, a grandfather clock and chair appeared to have been turned over. To the left, as one entered the study, Louis XV bureau plat that Williams used as a desk. In front of the desk, face down in a pool of blood on the antique Turkish Ushak carpet, was a 21-year-old Danny Lewis Hansford. Corporal Anderson asked Corporal Chesler to escort Williams out of the study and stationed Patrolman White at the door. Anderson's visual examination of the room revealed two World War II vintage German Luger pistols spent 9mm shell casings, live rounds of 9mm ammunition, apparently ejected from one or more of the pistols, 
bullet fragments, and a chair situated over the body as well as an apparent ricochet mark high on the north wall. Detective Reagan was faced with a puzzle in Williams' study that had pieces out of place and two defense lawyers already at the scene. On one hand was the story told by Williams. On the other hand was the story being told by the scene. The stories did not match. This is a gross understatement. Not only did some items of evidence contradict Williams' story, virtually every item of evidence contradicted Williams' story. End quote. Okay, I gotta be a bit pedantic and petty. Williams was using the bureau plat as a desk because that's what it is. A desk is the very definition of a bureau plat. Also, Danny was lying on the Ushak carpet, bleeding on the antique Ushak carpet. I feel like if Jim had got his way, Danny would have fallen on the bare floor. And then, there is this claim that every item of evidence contradicted Williams' story. This is a bold claim, one which Kirkland does not really elaborate on. If you are going to say every, you gotta back it up. In Kirkland's defense, there are some problematic red flags. The most glaring two being, one, that Danny's hand was very bloody and the gun, which was under his hand, was bloodless. And two, a chair was over Danny's body with one of the chair legs on his pant leg. Kirkland has this to say about the chair, quote, There was only one explanation. The chair had to have been placed on top of the body after the fact, so after the death. And, because Williams had been the only one there at the time, he had done it. End quote. Yet again I say, uh, maybe? One, how do you know that Williams was the only one there? Two, even if he uprighted the chair, so what? Jim was a stickler for order. Unthinkingly straightening up is something people do, especially when they're in shock. But even if he did it on purpose, I still ask, yeah, and? And three, why could it have not have been a cop who uprighted the chair? The officers in the McDonald case uprighted a plant and put the phone back on the hook. It's not like that kind of thing is unheard of. The non-bloody gun is more interesting, and yet it is the chair that gets the bulk of the attention. Kirkland adds the following about the arrest of Jim Williams. Quote, I walked across the entrance hall to where Williams and Mr. Duffy were sitting. I had advised Duffy that Williams was to be arrested. This led to one of the more bizarre events of the entire Williams case for me personally. I offer no suggestion as to what it meant because it wasn't clear at the time and has become no more clear over the ensuing years. When I informed Bob Duffy that Williams was to be arrested, Williams himself responded, completely calm and controlled. He looked up at me and said, If I'd wanted to, I could have shot you. There's another pistol in the table. He meant the side table next to the sofa where he was seated. Obviously, someone had forgotten to secure the suspect and the area within his immediate control, to quote the standard phrase. But that was understandable. Williams' attorney was sitting with him. This was supposed to be a self-defense case, and both weapons from the alleged shootout were accounted for. After all, how many loaded handguns does one person have lying around the house? The answer in Williams' case would be five, three of them World War II vintage Lugers, end quote. How many times do I have to say um to Kirkland? 
someone had forgotten to secure the scene, and this was understandable. So there's no way a cop would have righted a chair, but not checking that the scene was secure is understandable. I mean, how many guns can one man have in the American South, in a town that's notorious for being a bit weird? Savannah proudly accepted a man who leashed his pet flies and took them for a walk. Yes, what Jim said was odd. The whole town was odd, and Jim could very well be in shock, or at least not thinking clearly. Regardless, securing the scene is usually protocol for the first responders, but is ultimately the responsibility of all law enforcement at the scene. It may be understandable that this was not done when your officers are greener on the gills, but it is not something that Kirkland should be brushing off like he does. Moving on, Jim is arrested and held on a $25,000 bond, which he pays as soon as. He is off to Geneva on May 6th for the Fabergé sale, taking Joe Goodman as his companion. From Bardsley, quote, As the local media became fully engaged in reporting the shooting, Danny's troubled and tarnished reputation was exposed. While a number of Jim's friends knew, or at least suspected, he was gay, once the nature of his relationship with a violent and marijuana-dependent male prostitute was known, it became a scandal. The acceptance by Savannah's elite that Jim had worked for so diligently began to unravel. On Friday, June 12th, Chatham County Prosecutor Spencer Lawton presented his evidence to a grand jury, which indicted Jim for premeditated murder with malice aforethought in legal terminology. The indictment was shocking and very damaging to the reputation of a respected antique dealer with no history of violent behavior. Worse for Jim, Danny's mother, Emily Bannister, the woman who repeatedly rejected her son, immediately filed a $10 million-plus lawsuit against Jim for murdering her son, execution-style. Jim did not behave like a man who was guilty. He went to Europe a second time that year to buy antiques and, as usual, hosted his famous Christmas party for Savannah socialites. Reportedly, some invited guests did not attend because they thought having the party the same year as the shooting was in bad taste, end quote. John Barrett says, Even now, Williams maintained an air of unruffled calm. His trial was not scheduled to begin until January, more than six months away. He asked the court for permission to go back to Europe on another buying trip, and permission was granted. When he returned, he kept to his old routines. He had his hair cut by Jimmy Taglioli on Abercorn Street. He shopped at Smith's Market. He ate dinner at Elizabeth on 37th. He was not even slightly remorseful. He had no reason to be, he thought. As he had told the Gazette, I haven't done anything wrong, end quote. Good God, so many things to unpack there. First, Jim is acting like nothing had happened. I get the feeling that this is how Jim always acted. And by that I mean, he just keeps plowing on through his life in the manner in which he wants his life to be. Sort of a variation on fake it till you make it. Jim acts like something is a certain way and therefore, at least in his own mind, that is the way that something actually is. Self-actualization that would make Tony Robbins proud. If anyone is concerned that Jim doesn't mourn Danny first, y'all need to stop judging people by how you think they should act. People seem to have a hard time comprehending that thoughts, feelings, and actions are not the same thing. We love to judge people for how they act. Gossip, memes, and tabloids are proof, so don't even try to tell me that's not true. 
TMZ is still thriving in the post-COVID world. I will harp on this now and I will continue to harp on this probably until I die. Actions do mean something, but they often mean something other than what we think they do. It is a bit scary when you become fully prescient that you may never really know anyone but yourself. Jim Williams spent so much time placing his mask of civilized old money over his face, there was really no way he wasn't going to continue wearing it. If he did do any grieving, it was in private. I will also continue to harp on the fact that people are really... I will also continue to harp on the fact that people are really never just one thing. Jim could grieve and be pissed off at Danny, and I'm pretty sure he was at least irked that Danny wouldn't be Pygmalioned into Jim's image. Whether Jim murdered Danny or it was actually self-defense, Jim realized Danny never was his protege, and I'm fairly sure that he was mourning that. Honestly, with the violence of Danny's death, the trial hanging over his head, his social position teetering on the edge, and a ginormous lawsuit threatening, I'm impressed he kept his cool as well as he did. Also, is Emily sad over her son's death? The lawsuit is a bit sus. Now, I sound like I'm judging her for her actions, but it seems weird that she came up with the idea of suing so quickly. Today, in 2023, yes, I would not be surprised. But in 1981? This was not a common occurrence, let alone suing before the criminal case had actually even gotten going. Barrent also says that Emily Bannister sued Jim Williams for $10,003,500 and that the $3,500 was for funeral costs. Really, adding on the $3,500 for funeral costs just seems petty when you are already asking for so much. I would love to know if she thought of this on her own or if a lawyer approached her with the concept. It's not the suit itself that puzzles me, it's the timing. Debbie, the girlfriend, would claim that Danny thought his mother hated him. In Emily's defense, Barrent says, quote, Emily Bannister, not yet 40, looked surprisingly youthful for a woman with a 21-year-old son. She had light brown hair and angular childlike features. Her expression, which one might have expected to reflect anger and resentment under the circumstances, was merely one of sadness. She spoke only to the woman who sat next to her, an assistant in the district attorney's office. When reporters approached, she turned away in silence. End quote. Jim Williams would be tried for the crime of Danny's murder four times. I honestly wonder why he was arrested, let alone tried. I'm not trying to say that he shouldn't have been. What I'm wondering is that if Jim had actually been old Georgia money, would the question of his guilt have even been considered? If Danny's death had not brought Jim's unsavory connection to the low-class rent boy into the stark daylight, would there have been a trial, let alone four of them? Don't forget, it's 1981, people, in the deepest of the Deep South. For those of you who have seen the film Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, Danny Hansford, renamed Billy Hansen, is portrayed as a belligerent redneck, but we are given no backstory for his presence in the tale, other than he is the one who is killed. There is one thing that Depp Kirkland and I do agree on. Danny never got a fair shake. There were so many places in time when Danny could have had some help, some love, some direction in his life. He may have taken a more healthy path. 
I think what offends Kirkland about the defense team's portrait of Danny Hansford, akin to the one in the movie, is that it makes Danny look like he should be blamed for his own death. The problem with this view, however, is that Danny was unbalanced. Kirkland even details all the reasons why this is true, and then Kirkland says, According to William's statements, Hanford had morphed into Conan the Destroyer, slammed him into a pocket door, and chased him into the study, end quote. Kirkland says like it is ridiculous, which is strange because he himself lists many of the unbalanced things Danny does, beating up his sister, ripping a door off its hinges. It's not like these rages are unprecedented. When Jim goes on trial, if there ever was a microcosm of how the justice system really works, this would be a prime example. I want to keep this discussion to the salient points. Leave me all the annoying legal acrobatics that make for great TV but horrible justice are in play here. I could go on four days picking these trials apart. The first trial takes place in Savannah. Spencer Lawton is the relatively green district attorney. Williams tries very hard to keep his sexuality out of the trial, and he is convicted. Barrett, who was in Savannah not for the first trial, but moved to Savannah in between the first and second trial, was, and he was acquainted with many of the involved, wrote the following about his time sitting in on the trials, quote, in the corridor, a man in a short-sleeved shirt and slicked-down hair approached me. I see you've been taking notes, he said. You doing legwork for the defense? No, I said. It's just for myself. The man was carrying a rolled-up newspaper. He had been sitting in the row in front of me, perched sideways in his seat with one arm slung over the back of the bench. Every so often he would laugh silently to himself, and his body would jerk in spasms of suppressed mirth. Then his head would roll back and he'd peer through his grimy glasses at the proceedings. I took him to be a courthouse regular. Spencer Lawton's as much on trial here as Williams, he said. They tell me he's been in hibernation for two months preparing his case. He's turned his office into a bunker. Won't take telephone calls. Staff can't get in to see him. He and Depp, Depp is Kirkland, his chief assistant, they're trying to keep stuff away from the defense at all costs. They want to surprise him, turn it into a trial by ambush. They're paranoid about things leaking out, that's what I hear. It's strictly Bush League. The bottom of the line is Lawton scared to death. Who tells you all this, I asked. I hear things. People talk. The man looked from one end of the hall to the other. I'll tell you one thing. Lawton's overplaying his hand in this case. See, it's not a murder case. Nobody thinks it is. The facts don't add up. It's manslaughter. Williams and Hansford argued. Somebody grabbed a gun. Maybe Williams panicked afterward and tried to rearrange things, but it wasn't premeditated. Then why was Lawton going for a murder conviction? Could be politics, he said. Could be he wants to win big after losing the Rangers case. Could be he doesn't want to appear to be too soft on hermaphrodites. On what, I asked? Hermaphrodites, the man said. That's what this whole thing's about, you know. Or haven't you heard? Oh, right, I said. That's what I've heard. End quote. Oi, I mean, is there truth in this? Probably. But how much can you trust a man who cannot differentiate between a homosexual and a hermaphrodite? Depp Kirkland actually mentioned in this quote 
does not address this claim directly. However, in his book, Lawyer Games, he does spend a decent amount of printer toner discussing the item that got Williams out of prison after his verdict and back in Mercer House pending his appeal. Shortly after the verdict delivered, the defense would receive an anonymous copy of some of the discovery files. This copy included the parts of the documents that had been redacted when they were sent to the court and to the defense. One of the redacted parts included a police officer's report that there had been fresh bullet holes in the floor at Mercer House. This wouldn't to go against the prosecution's assertion that Jim Williams had set up at least part of the scene ahead of time and that Danny had not shot a gun at all. Kirkland goes through a rather long, erroneous account of all the reasons that the Brady Rule exists, mainly that it was developed by prosecutors to pr protect prosecutors. Maybe in Georgia? But Brady v. Maryland established a precedent that was intended to protect the legal system, generally the system that assumes an accused innocence until proven guilty, and the evidence that is available and given to the defense in aid of this purpose. According to Kirkland, it had become practice to send a Brady file to the court of helpful documents, which is like discovery to me. The key here is that the court is the one who gets the full unaltered documents. The defense, on the other hand, only gets the information which the prosecution deems to be valid. If the defense asks for statements given by the defendant, for instance, the prosecution will turn over that paperwork with only the defendant's statement legible, the police part of the conversation being redacted, the argument being that they could not turn over investigative information to the defense or anyone the gray area of just what amounts to exculpatory and investigative evidence. The court itself holds this Brady file as court documents, but has no obligation to provide them to the defense. This is ridiculous, and for Kirkland to argue that this is somehow okay is unconscionable, and is inviolate of the Brady precedent. He's playing as many games as he is accusing the defense. And let me throw in a tidbit of information here. I want to know if I was missing something in this Brady discussion, and my long-suffering friend, who has practiced law for tens of years, helped me get my thoughts straight. You know you are, dear. The appeals court also agrees. They vacate William's verdict and call for a new trial. In the movie, all of William's trials are compressed into one. In life, the entire circus takes almost nine years. In the book, that would be Barrett's Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. It is the moment between Trial 1 and Trial 2 in which we are introduced to Miss Minerva. Real name, Valerie Fennel Aiken Bowles. She is featured more in the movie version than in its written namesake, and she's almost unheard of in the two After Midnight books. Before her introduction in the original John Barrett book, the only hint we have of Jim's spiritual belief system is his invention of psychodice. Jim had the idea that if you concentrated your will, you could improve the odds of rolling whichever number you want. The way Barrent mentions psychodice, it seems kind of out of place. There is this accomplished and gallant man, Jim Williams, who is a wonderful host and, oh by the way, he believes he can mentally manipulate dice to roll in any way he'd like. Much later in the book, we are traveling to Beaufort, South Carolina to visit Miss Bowles who practiced hoodoo and root magic. There is not much information about the relationship between Jim and Valerie, but the suggestion is that they were very close, that Jim traveled more than an hour to see her for years. 
Before the second trial, Williams brings several items to Miss Bowles at her home in South Carolina. Then he follows her to the grave of her partner, Mr. Eagle, to perform a ritual to help the outcome of the upcoming case. John Barrent accompanies Jim in both the book and in the movie. Depp Kirkland says Barrent's book, and thus the movie based on it, is true crime-ish. In other words, Barrett takes some liberties with the truth, Valerie Bowles being one case in point. Now, Sonny Seiler, Jim's attorney for trials two through four, says that Barrett kept it as close to the truth as anyone could. After all my research, I think Barrett probably reconstructed some conversations, but I think the core of the story is probably accurate. This doesn't get us anywhere in knowing Danny's place in all of this. If Danny was such an important part of Jim's life, as was suggested by the prosecution, then you would think that Danny would have been taken to meet Valerie. I get the feeling Danny would have made fun of Jim for his connection to Hoodoo. I can't see Valerie putting up with any of Danny's bullshit. So the meeting times would probably not have been many. But by all accounts, Valerie loved Jim. Like a desi auntie. She would have had opinions about and potions concerning the boy. So did Danny and Valerie ever meet? Well, what we do know is that Valerie thought Danny's ghost was doing its best to destroy Jim and everything he worked for, like a draugr or a wraith. Not sure if the voodoo concept of a duppy or the gullah concept of a stepney works here. Someone up on Hoodoo, DM me. This tells me, though, that she probably did meet Danny and had a decent knowledge of his personality. But whether she got her idea from personal experience or by the rumor mill, there is something in this pronouncement. With Valerie's spells and charms in working order, the second trial gets underway. This one ends in conviction, and Jim has to head straight to prison. But he won't stay there for long, and we have two more trials to cover. But that's all there is for today. I swear next week is the last episode in the series, I promise. If you like this show, please like, rate, and review. It helps. If you don't like the show, just stop listening. It's so easy. I'm putting the Patreon and contact details in the show notes. Stop on in, say hello. Pilot will see you out, and I will talk at you next time on It's All Relative. Oh, ho, ho, it's mine.